Welcome. This is Signal. The Shadow Over Inn's Mouth A novella by H.P. Lovecraft One During the winter of 1927-28, officials of the federal government made a strange and secret investigation of certain conditions in the ancient Massachusetts seaport of Innsmouth. The public first learnt of it in February, when a vast series of raids and arrests occurred, followed by the deliberate burning and dynamiting, under suitable precautions, of an enormous number of crumbling and worm-eaten and supposedly empty houses along the abandoned waterfront. Uninquiring souls, let this occurrence pass as one of the major clashes in the spasmodic war on liquor. Keener news followers, however, wondered at the prodigious number of arrests, the abnormally large force of men used in making them, and the secrecy surrounding the disposal of the prisoners. No trials, or even definite charges, were reported, nor were any of the captives seen thereafter in the regular jails of the nation. There were vague statements about disease, concentration camps, and later about the dispersal of various naval and military prisons, but nothing positive ever developed. Innsmouth itself was left almost depopulated and is even now only beginning to show signs of a sluggishly revived existence. Complaints from many liberal organizations were met with long, confidential discussions, and representatives were taken on trips to see certain camps and prisons. As a result, the societies became surprisingly passive and reticent. Newspaper men were harder to manage, but seemed largely to cooperate with the government in the end. Only one paper a tabloid always discounted because of its wild policy, mentioned the deep-diving submarine that discharged torpedoes downward in the marine abyss just beyond Devil Reef. That item, gathered by chance in a haunt of sailors, seemed indeed rather far-fetched, since the low, black reef lies a full mile and a half outside the Innsmouth Harbor. People around the country and in the nearby towns muttered a great deal among themselves, but said very little to the outer world. They had talked about a dying and half-deserted Innsmouth for nearly a century, and nothing new could be wilder or more hideous than what they had whispered and hinted at years before. Many things had taught them secretiveness but there was now no need to exert pressure on them. Besides, they really knew very little, for wide salt marshes, desolate and unpeopled, kept neighbors off Innsmouth on the landward side. But, at last, I'm going to defy the ban on speech about this thing. Results, I am certain, are so thorough that no public harm save a shock of repulsion could ever accrue from a hinting of what was found by those horrified raiders 
at Yin's mouth. Besides, what was found might possibly have more than one explanation. I do not know just how much of the whole tale has been told even to me, and I have many reasons for not wishing to probe deeper. For my contact with this affair has been closer than that of any other layman, and I have carried away impressions which have yet to drive me to drastic measures. It was I who fled frantically out of Innsmouth in the early morning hours of July 16th, 1927, whose frightened appeals for government inquiry and action brought on the whole reported episode. I was willing enough to stay mute while the whole affair was fresh and uncertain, but now that it is an old story, with public interest and curiosity gone, I have an odd craving to whisper about those few frightful hours in that ill-rumored and evilly shadowed seaport of death and blasphemous abnormality. The mere telling helps me restore confidence to my own faculties, to reassure myself that I was not simply the first to succumb to a contagious nightmare hallucination. It helps me, too, in making up my mind regarding a certain terrible step which lies ahead of me. I never heard of Innsmouth to the day before I saw it for the first and so far, last time. I was celebrating my come of age by a tour of New England, sightseeing, antiquarian, and genealogical, and had planned to go directly from ancient Newburyport to Arkham, whence my mother's family was derived. I had no car, but was traveling by train, trolley, and motor coach, always seeking the cheapest possible route. In Newburyport, they told me the steam train was the thing to take to Arkham, but it was only at the station ticket office, when I demurred at the high fare, that I learned about Innsmouth. The stout, shrewd-faced agent, whose speech showed her not to be a local woman, seemed sympathetic toward my efforts at economy and made a suggestion that none of my other informants had offered. You could take that old bus, I suppose, she said with a certain hesitation. But it ain't thought much of hereabouts. Goes through Innsmouth. You may have heard about that. So people don't like it. Run by an Innsmouth fellow, Joe Sargent, but never gets any custom from here. Or Arkham either, I guess. Wonder it keeps running at all. I suppose it's cheap enough, but I never see more than two or three people in it. Nobody but Innsmouth folks. Leaves the square front of Harmon's Drugstore at 10 a.m. and 7 p.m., unless they've changed lately. Looks like a terrible rattle trap. I've never been on it. That was the first I'd ever heard of the shadowed Innsmouth. Any reference to the town shown on common maps or listed in recent guidebooks would have interested me, and the agent's odd manner of illusion roused something like real curiosity. A town able to inspire such dislike in its neighbors, I thought, must at least be rather unusual and worthy of a tourist's attention. If I came before Arkham, I could stop off there, and so I asked the agent to tell me something about it. 
She was very deliberate and spoke with an air of feeling slightly superior to what she said. Innsmouth. Well, it's a queer kind of town down at the mouth of the Monoxet. Used to almost be a city, quite a port before the War of 1812, but all gone to pieces in the last hundred years or so. No railroad now. B&M never went through, and the branch line from Raleigh was given up years ago. More empty houses than people, I guess, and no businesses to speak of, except fishing and lobstering. Everybody trades mostly here, or in Arkham, or Ipswich. Once, they had quite a few mills, but nothing's left except one gold refinery running the leanest kind of part-time. That refinery, though, used to be a big thing, and old man Marsh, who owns it, must be rich in creases. Queer old duck, though, and sticks mighty close to his home. He's supposed to have developed some skin disease or deformity late in life that keeps him out of sight. Grandson of Captain Obed Marsh, who founded the business. His mother seems to have been some kind of foreigner, they say South Seas Islander. So everybody raised Cain when he married an Ipswich girl 50 years ago. They always do that about Innsmouth people. Folks here and hereabouts always try to cover up any Innsmouth blood they have in them. But Marsh's children and grandchildren look just like everyone else as far as I can see. I've had them pointed out to me here, though, come to think of it, the elder children don't seem to be around lately. Never saw the old man. And why is everyone so down on Innsmouth? Well, young lady, you mustn't take too much stock in what people say here. They're hard to get started, but once they get started, they never let up. They've been telling things about Innsmouth, whispering them mostly, for the last hundred years, I guess, and I gather they're more scared than anything else. Some of the stories would make you laugh, but old Captain Marsh driving bargains with the devil and bringing imps out of hell to live in Innsmouth, or about some kind of devil worship and awful sacrifices in some place near the wharves that people stumbled on around 1845 or thereabouts. But I come from Panton, Vermont, and that kind of story don't go down with me. You ought to hear, though. Some of the old-timers tell about the Black Reef off the coast. Devil Reef, they call it. It's well above water a good part of the time and never much below it, but you could hardly call it an island. The story is there's a whole legion of devils seen sometimes on that reef, sprawled out or darting in and out of some kind of caves near the top. It's a rugged, uneven thing, a good bit over a mile out, and toward the end of shipping days, sailors used to make big detours just to avoid it. That is, sailors that don't hail from Innsmouth. One of the things they had against old Captain Marsh was that he was supposed to land on it sometimes at night when the tide was right. Maybe he did, for I dare say that rock formation was interesting, and it's just barely possible he was looking for pirate loot and maybe finding it. But there was talk of him dealing with demons there. 
Fact is, on the whole, I guess it was really the captain that gave a bad reputation to the reef. That was before the big epidemic of 1846, when over half the folks in Innsmouth was carried off. He never did quite figure out what the trouble was, but it was probably some kind of foreign disease brought from China or somewhere by the shipping. It surely was bad enough. There were riots over it, all sorts of ghastly doings that I don't believe ever got outside of town, and it left the place in awful shape. Never came back. There can't be more than 300 or 400 people living there now. But the real thing behind the way folks feel is simply race prejudice. And I don't say I'm blaming those that hold it. I hate those Innsmouth folks myself, and I wouldn't care to go to their town. I suppose you know, though I can see you're a Westerner by your talk, that a lot of our New England ships used to have to do with queer ports in Africa, Asia, the South Seas, and everywhere else and what queer kinds of people they sometimes brought back with them. You've heard about that sailor man that came home with a Chinese wife. Maybe you know there's still a bunch of Fiji Islanders somewhere around Cape Cod. Well, there must be something like that back of the Innsmouth people. The place always was badly cut off from the rest of the county by marshes and creeks, and we can't be sure about the ins and outs of the matter. But it's pretty clear that old Captain Marsh must have brought home some odd specimens when he had all three of his ships in commission back in the 20s and 30s. There certainly is a strange streak in the inn's mouth, folks, today. I don't know how to explain it, but it sort of makes you crawl. You'll notice a little in Sergeant if you take his bus. Some of them have queer, narrow heads and flat noses and bulgy, staring eyes that never seem to shut, and their skin ain't quite right. Rough and scabby, and the sides of their necks are all shriveled and creased up. Get bald, too. Very young. The older fellows look the worst. Fact is, I don't believe I've ever seen a very old chap of that kind. Guess they must die from looking in the glass. Animals hate them. They used to have lots of horse trouble before autos came in. Nobody around here or in Arkham or Ipswich will have anything to do with them. And they act kind of offish themselves when they come to town or when anyone tries to fish on their grounds. Queer how fish are always thick off Innsmouth Harbor when there aren't any anywhere else around. But just try to fish there yourself and see how the folks chase you off. Those people used to come here on the railroad, walking and taking the train at Rowley after the branch was dropped. Now they use that bus. Yes, there's a hotel in Innsmouth called the Gillum House, but I don't believe it can amount to much. I wouldn't advise you to try it. Better to stay here and take the 10 o'clock bus tomorrow morning. Then you can get an evening bus there at Arkham for 8 o'clock. There was a factory inspector who stopped at Gillum a couple of years ago, and he had a lot of unpleasant hints about the place. Seems they get a queer crowd there. 
for this fellow heard voices in the other rooms, but most of them was empty. That gave him the shivers. It was foreign talk, he thought, but he said the bad thing about it was the voice that sometimes spoke. It sounded so unnatural, slopping-like, he said, that he didn't dare undress and go to sleep. Just waited up and lit out first thing in the morning. The talk went on most all night. This fellow, Casey was his name, had a lot to say about how the Innsmouth folks watched him and seemed on guard. He found the Marsh Refinery a queer place. It's an old mill on the lower falls of the Minuxet. And what he said tallied up with what I heard. Books in bad shape and no clear account of any kind of dealings. You know, it's always been kind of a mystery where the marshes get the gold they refine. They've never seemed to do much buying in that line, but years ago, they shipped out an enormous lot of ingots. Used to be talk of queer foreign kind of jewelry that the sailors and refinery men sold on the sly, or were seen once or twice on some of the marsh women folks. People allowed maybe old Captain Obed traded it in some heathen port, especially since he was always ordering stacks of glass beads and trinkets such as seafaring men used to get for native trade. Others thought, and still think, he found an old pirate cache out on Devil's Reef. But here's the funny thing. The old captain's been dead for these 60 years... And there ain't been a good-sized ship out of that place since the Civil War. But just the same, the marshes still keep on buying those few native trade things. Mostly glass and rubber goo they tell me. Maybe the Innsmouth folks like them to look at themselves. God knows they've gotten to be about as bad as the South Sea cannibals and the Guinea savages. That plague of 46 must have taken off the best blood in the place. Anyway, they're a doubtful lot now, and the marshes and the other rich folks are as bad as any. As I told you, probably ain't more than 400 people in the whole town in spite of all the streets they say are there. I guess they're what they call white trash down south, lawless and sly and full of secret doings. They get a lot of fish and lobsters and do the exporting by truck. Queer how the fish swarm right there and nowhere else. Nobody can ever keep track of these people. And state school officials and census men have a devil of a time. And you can bet that prying strangers ain't welcome around Innsmouth. I've heard personally of more than one business or government man that's disappeared there. And there's loose talk of one who went crazy and is out at Danvers now. They must have fixed up some awful scare for that fellow. That's why I wouldn't go at night if I was you. Never been there, have no wish to go. But I guess a daytime trip couldn't hurt you. Even though the people hereabouts will advise you not to make it. If you're just sightseeing, Looking for old-time stuff. Innsmouth ought to be quite the place for you. 
and so I spent part of that evening at the Newburyport Public Library, looking up data about Innsmouth. When I had tried to question the natives in shops, the lunchroom, the garages, and the fire station, I had found them even harder to get started than the ticket agent had predicted, and realized that I could not spare the time to overcome their first instinctive reticences. They had a kind of obscure suspiciousness, as if there were something amiss with anyone too much interested in Innsmouth. At the YMCA, where I was stopping, the clerk merely discouraged my going to such a dismal, decadent place, and the people at the library showed much the same attitude. Clearly, in the eyes of the educated, Innsmouth was merely an exaggerated case of civic degeneration. The Essex County histories on the library shelves had very little to say, except that the town was founded in 1643, noted for shipbuilding before the Revolution, a seat of great marine prosperity in the early 19th century, and later a minor factory center using the Minuxet as power. The epidemic and riots of 1846 were very sparsely treated, as if they formed a discredit to the county. References to the decline were very few, though the significance of the later record was unmistakable. After the Civil War, all industrial life was confined to the Marsh Refining Company, and the marketing of gold ingots formed the only remaining bit of major commerce aside from the eternal fishing. That fishing paid less and less as the price of the commodity fell, and large-scale corporations offered competition. But there was never a dearth of fish around the Innsmouth Harbor. Foreigners seldom settled there, and there was some discreetly veiled evidence that a number of Poles and Portuguese who had tried it had been scattered in a particularly drastic fashion. Most interesting of all was a glancing reference to the strange jewelry vaguely associated with Innsmouth. It evidently impressed the whole countryside more than a little, for mention was made of specimens in the Museum of the Miskatonic University at Arkham and in the display room of the Newburyport Historical Society. The fragmentary descriptions of these were bald and prosaic, but they hinted to me an undercurrent of persistent strangeness. Something about them seemed so odd and provocative that I could not put them out of my mind, and, despite the relative lateness of the hour, I resolved to see the local sample, said to be a large, queerly proportioned thing evidently meant for a tiara, if it could possibly be arranged. The librarian gave me a note of introduction to the curator of the society, Miss Anna Tilton, who lived nearby, and after a brief explanation, that ancient gentlewoman was kind enough to pilot me to the closed building, since the hour was not outrageously late. The collection was a notable one indeed, but my present mood had eyes for nothing but the bizarre object that glistened in the corner cupboard under the electric lights. It took no excessive sensitiveness to beauty to make me literally gasp at that strange, unearthly splendor of alien, opulent fantasy that rested there on a purple velvet cushion. Even now, I can hardly describe what I saw, though it was clearly enough a sort of tiara as the description had said. It was tall in the front, with a very large and curiously irregular periphery, 
as if designed for a head of almost freakish elliptical outline. The material seemed to be predominantly gold, though a weird lighter lustrousness hinted at some strange alloy with an equally beautiful and scarcely identifiable metal. Its condition was almost perfect, and one could have spent hours in studying the striking and puzzling untraditional designs, some simply geometrical and some plainly marine, chased or molded in high relief on its surface with a craftsmanship of incredible skill and grace. The longer I looked, the more the thing fascinated me, and in this fascination, there was a curiously disturbing element hardly to be classified or accounted for. At first I decided it was the queer, otherworldly quality of the art which made me uneasy. All other art objects I had ever seen had either belonged to some known racial or national stream, or else they were consciously modernistic defiances of every recognized stream. This tiara was neither. It clearly belonged to some subtle technique of infinite maturity and perfection, yet that technique was utterly remote from any Eastern or Western, ancient or modern, which I had ever heard of or even seen exemplified. It was as if the workmanship were that of another planet. However, I soon saw that my uneasiness had a second, perhaps equally potent source residing in the pictorial and mathematical suggestions of the strange designs. The patterns all hinted of remote secrets and unimaginable abysses in time and space, and the monotonously aquatic nature of the reliefs became almost sinister. Among these reliefs were fabulous monsters of abhorrent grotesqueness and malignity, half ichthyic and half Petrachian in suggestion, which one could not disassociate from certain haunting and uncomfortable sense of pseudo-memory, as if they called up some image from deep cells and tissues whose retentive functions were wholly primal and awesomely ancestral. At times, I fancied every contour of these blasphemous fish frogs was overflowing with the ultimate quintessence of unknown and inhuman evil. In contrast to the tiara's aspect was its brief and prosy history as related by Miss Tilton. It had been pawned for ridiculous sum at a shop in State Street in 1873 by a drunken Innsmouth man shortly afterward killed in a brawl. The society had acquired it directly from the pawnbroker, at once giving it a display worthy of its quality. It was labeled as probable East Indian or Indo-Chinese providence, but the attribution was frankly tentative. Miss Tilton, comparing all possible hypotheses regarding its origin and its presence in New England, was inclined to believe that it formed part of an exotic pirate horde discovered by old Captain Obed Marsh. This view was surely not weakened by the persistent offers of purchase at a high price which the Marshes began to make as soon as they knew of its presence, and which they repeated to this day despite the Society's unwavering determination not to sell. 
As the good lady showed me out of the building, she made it clear that the pirate theory of the Marsh Fortune was a popular one among the intelligent people of the region. Her own attitude toward the shadowed inn's mouth, which she had never seen, was one of dismay at a community slipping far down the cultural scale, and she assured me that rumors of devil worship were partly justified by the peculiar secret cult which had gained force there and engulfed all the Orthodox churches. It was called, she said, the Esoteric Order of Dagon, and was undoubtedly debased quasi-pagan thing imported from the East a century before, at a time when Innsmouth fisheries seemed to be going barren. Its persistence among the simple people was quite natural in the view of the sudden and permanent return of abundantly fine fishing, and it soon became the greatest influence in the town, replacing Freemasonry altogether and taking up the headquarters of the old Masonic Hall on New Church Green. All this, to the pious Miss Tilton, formed an excellent reason for shunning the ancient town of decay and desolation. But to me, it was merely fresh incentive. To my architectural and historical anticipations was now added an acute anthropological zeal, and I could scarcely sleep in my small room at the Y as the night wore away. 2. Shortly before ten the next morning, I stood with one small valise in front of Harmon's Drug Store in the old market square waiting for the Innsmouth bus. As the hour for its arrival drew near, I noticed a general drift of loungers to other places up the street or to the ideal lunch across the square. Evidently, the ticket agent was not exaggerating the dislike which local people bore towards Innsmouth and its denizens. In a few moments, a small motor coach of extreme decrepitude and dirty gray color rattled down State Street, made a turn, and drew up on the curb beside me. I felt immediately that this was the right one, a guess which the half-illegible sign on the windshield, Arkham, Innsmouth, Newport, soon verified. There were only three passengers dark, unkempt men of sullen vestige and somewhat youthful cast, and when the vehicle stopped, they clumsily shambled out and began walking up State Street in a silent, almost furtive fashion. The driver also alighted, and I watched him as he went into the drugstore and made some purchase. This, I reflected, must be Joe Sargent mentioned by the ticket agent. And even before I noticed any details, there spread over me a wave of spontaneous aversion which could neither be checked nor explained. It suddenly struck me as very natural that the local people should not wish to ride a bus owned and driven by this man, or to visit any oftener than possible the habitat of such a man and his kinfolk. When the driver came out of the store, I looked at him more carefully and tried to determine the source of my evil impression. He was a thin, stooped-shouldered man, not much under six feet tall, dressed in shabby blue civilian clothes and wearing a frayed gray golf cap. His age was perhaps thirty-five, 
but the odd deep creases in the sides of his neck made him seem older when one did not study his dull, expressionless face. He had a narrow head, bulging, watery blue eyes that seemed never to wink, a flat nose, a receding forehead and chin, and singularly underdeveloped ears. His long, thick lip and coarse-poured grayish cheeks seemed almost beardless except for some sparse yellow hairs that straggled and curled in irregular patches, and in places the surface seemed queerly irregular, as if peeling from some cantankerous disease. His hands were large and heavily veined and had a very unusual grayish-blue tinge. His fingers were strikingly short in proportion to the rest of the structure and seemed to have a tendency to curl closely into the huge palm. As he walked towards the bus, I observed his peculiar shambling gait and saw his feet were inordinarily immense. The more I studied them, the more I wondered how he could buy any shoes to fit them. A certain greasiness about the fellow increased my dislike. He was evidently given to working or lounging around fish docks and he carried with him much of their characteristic smell. Just what foreign blood was in him, I could not even guess. His oddities certainly did not look Asiatic, Polynesian, Levantine, or Negroid, yet I could see why the people found him alien. I myself would have thought of biological degeneration rather than alienage. I was sorry when I saw that there would be no other passengers on the bus. Somehow I did not like the idea of riding alone with this driver. But as leaving time obviously approached, I conquered my qualms and followed the man aboard, extending him a dollar bill and murmuring the single word, Innsmouth. He looked at me curiously for a second as he returned 40 cents change without speaking. I took a seat far behind him, but on the same side of the bus, since I wished to watch the shore during the journey. At length, the decrepit vehicle started with a jerk and rattled noisily past the old brick buildings of State Street amidst a cloud of vapor from the exhaust. Glancing at people on the sidewalks, I thought I detected in them a curious wish to avoid looking at the bus, or at least a wish to avoid seeming to look at it. When we turned to the left onto High Street, where the going was smoother, flying by old stately mansions of the early Republic and still older colonial farmhouses, passing the Lower Green and Parker River and finally emerging into a long, monotonous stretch of open shore country. The day was warm and sunny, but the landscape of sand, sedge grass, stunted shrubbery became more and more desolate as we proceeded. Out the window, I could see the blue water and sandy line of Plum Island, and we presently drew very near the beach as our narrow road veered off the main highway to Rowley and Ipswich. There were no visible houses, but I could tell by the state of the road the traffic was very light hereabouts. The small, weather-worn telephone poles carried only two wires. Now and then we crossed crude wooden bridges over tidal creeks that would wind far inland and promoted the general isolation of the region. Once in a while I noticed dead stumps 
and crumbling foundation walls above the drifting sand, and recalled the tradition quoted in one of the histories I had read that this was once fertile and thickly settled countryside. The change, it said, came simultaneously with the Innsmouth epidemic of 1846, and was thought by simple folk to have a dark connection with hidden forces of evil. Actually, it was caused by unwise cutting of woodlands near the shore, which robbed the soil of its best protection and opened the way for waves of wind-blown sand. At last, we lost sight of Plum Island and saw the vast expanse of the open Atlantic on our left. Our narrow course had begun to climb steeply, and I felt a singular sense of disquiet in looking at the lonely crest ahead where the rutted road met the sky. It was as if the bus were about to keep on in its ascent, leaving the sane earth altogether and merging with the unknown arcana of the upper air and cryptical sky. The smell of the sea took on ominous implications, and the silent driver's bent, rigid back and narrow head became more and more hateful. As I looked at him, I saw the back of his head was almost as hairless as his face, having only a few straggling yellow strands upon the gray, scabrous surface. Then we reached the crest and beheld the outspread valley beyond, where the Minuxit joins the sea, just north of a long line of cliffs that accumulate into Kingsport Head and veer off toward Cape Anne. On the far, misty horizon, I could just make out the dizzy profile of the head, topped by a queer ancient house of which some legends are told, but for the moment, all my attention was captured by the nearer panorama just below me. I had, I realized, come face to face with the rumor-shadowed Innsmouth. It was a town of wide extent and dense construction, yet one with the portentous dearth of visible life. From the tangle of chimney pots, scarcely a wisp of smoke came, and the three tall steeples loomed stark and unpainted against the seaward horizon. One of them was crumbling down at the top, and in the other were only black gaping holes where the clock dials should have been. The vast huddle of shagging gambrel roofs and the peak gables conveyed with offensive clearness the idea of wormy decay. As we approached along the now-descending road, I could see that many roofs were wholly caved in. There were some large, square Georgian houses, too, with hipped roofs, cupolas, and railed widow's walks. These were mostly well back from the water, and one or two seemed to be in moderately sound condition. Stretching inland from among them, I saw the rusted, grass-grown line of the abandoned railway, with leaning telegraph poles now devoid of wires, and the half-obstructed lines of the old carriage roads to Rowley and Ipswich. The decay was worse close to the waterfront, though in its very midst I could spy a white belfry and a fairly well-preserved brick structure which looked like a small factory. The harbor, long clogged with sand, was enclosed by an ancient stonebreaker, on which I began to discern the minute forms of a few seated fishermen, and at whose end 
were what looked like the foundations of a bygone lighthouse. A sandy tongue had formed inside this barrier, and upon it I saw a few decrepit cabins, moored dories, and scattered lobster pots. The only deep water seemed to be where the river poured out past the belfry structure and turned southward to join the ocean at the breakwater's end. Here and there, the ruins of wharves jutted out from the shore to end in indeterminate rottenness, those farthest south seeming the most decayed. And far out at sea, despite a high tide, I glimpsed a long black line scarcely rising above the water, yet carrying a suggestion of odd, latent malignancy. This, I knew, must be Devil Reef. As I looked, a subtle, curious sense of beckoning seemed superadded to the grim repulsion, and oddly enough, I found this overtone more disturbing than the primary impression. We met no one on the road but presently began to pass deserted farms in varying stages of ruin. Then I noticed a few inhabited houses with rags stuffed in broken windows and shells and dead fish lying about littered yards. Once or twice I saw listless people working in barren gardens or digging up clams on the fishy-smelling beach below, and groups of dirty, simian-vistaged children playing around weed-grown doorsteps. Somehow these people seemed more disquieting than the dismal buildings, for almost everyone had certain peculiarities of face and motion, which I instinctively disliked without being able to define or comprehend them. For a second, I thought this typical physique suggested some picture I had seen, perhaps in a book, under circumstances of particular horror or melancholy, but this pseudo-recollection passed very quickly. As the bus reached a lower level, I began to catch the steady note of a waterfall through the unnatural stillness. The leaning, unpainted houses grew thicker, lined both sides of the road, and displayed more urban tendencies than those we were leaving behind. The panorama ahead had contracted to a street scene, and in spots I could see where cobblestone pavement and stretches of brick sidewalk had formerly existed. All the houses were apparently deserted, and there were occasional gaps where tumble-down chimneys and cellar walls told of buildings that had collapsed. Pervading everything was the most nauseous, fishy odor imaginable. Soon cross streets and junctions began to appear, those on the left leading to shoreward realms of unpaid squalor and decay, while those on the right showed vistas of departed grandeur. So far, I had seen no people in the town, but there came signs of sparse habitation, curtain windows here and there, and the occasional battered motor car at the curb. Pavement and sidewalks were increasingly well-defined, and most of the houses were quite old, wood and brick structures of the early 19th century. They were obviously kept fit for habitation. As an amateur antiquarian, I almost lost my olfactory in disgust. Because of my feeling of menace and repulsion, 
amidst this rich, unfiltered survival from the past. But I was not to reach my destination without one very strong impression of poignantly disagreeable quality. The bus had come to a sort of open concourse or radio point with churches on two sides and the belagged remains of a circular green in the center. And I was looking at a large pillared hall on the right-hand junction ahead. The structure's once white paint was now graying and peeling and the black and gold sign on the pendament was so faded that I could only with difficulty make out the words Esoteric Order of Dagon. This, then, was the former Masonic Hall, now given over to the degraded cult. As I strained to decipher this inscription, my notice was distracted by raucous tunes of a cracked bell across the street, and I quickly turned to look out the window on my side of the coach. The sound came from a squat-towered stone church of manifestly later date than most of the houses, built in a clumsy gothic fashion and having a disproportionately high basement with shuttered windows. Though the hands of the clock were missing on the side I glimpsed, I knew that the hoarse strokes were telling the hour of eleven. Then, suddenly, all thoughts of time were blotted out by an onrushing image of sharp intensity and unaccountable horror which had seized me before I knew what it really was. The door of the church basement was open, revealing a rectangle of blackness inside. And as I looked, a certain object crossed, or seemed to cross, that dark rectangle, burning into my brain a momentary conception of nightmare which was all the more maddening because analysis could not show a single nightmarish quality in it. It was a living object, the first except the driver that I had seen since entering the compact part of town. Had I been in a steadier mood, I would have found nothing whatever of terror in it. Clearly, as I realized a moment later, it was the pastor clad in some peculiar vestments doubtless introduced since the Order of Dagon had modified the ritual of the local churches. The thing that had probably caught my first subconscious glance and supplied the touch of bizarre horror was the tall tiara he wore, an almost exact duplicate of the one Miss Tilton had shown me the previous evening. This, acting on my imagination, had supplied the namelessly sinister qualities to the indeterminate face and robed, shambling form beneath it. There was not, I soon decided, any reason why I should have felt a shuddering touch of evil pseudo-memory. Was it not natural that a local mystery cult should adopt, in among its regalements, a unique type of headdress, made familiar to the community in some strange way, perhaps as a treasure trove. A very thin sprinkling of repellent-looking youngish people now became visible on the sidewalks, lone individuals, and silent knots of two or three. 
The lower floors of crumbling houses sometimes harbored small shops with dingy signs, and I noticed a parked truck or two as we rattled along. The sound of waterfalls became more and more distinct, and presently I saw a fairly deep river gorge ahead, spanned by a wide, iron-railed highway bridge, beyond which a large square opened out. As we clanked over the bridge, I looked out both sides and observed some factory buildings on the edge of the grassy bluff or partway down. The water far below was very abundant, and I could see two vigorous sets of falls upstream, one on my right and at least one downstream on my left. From this point, the noise was quite deafening. We rolled into a large semicircular square across the river and drew up on the right-hand side in front of a tall, cupola-crowned building with the remnants of yellow paint and with half an effaced sign proclaiming it to be the Gillum House. I was glad to get off that bus and at once proceeded to check my valise into the shabby hotel lobby. There was only one person in sight, an elderly man without what I had come to call the Innsmouth look, and I decided not to ask him any questions which bothered me, remembering that odd things had been noticed in this hotel. Instead, I strolled out onto the square from which the bus had already gone and studied the scene minutely and appraisingly. One side of the cobblestone open space was a straight line of the river. The other was a semicircle of slant-roofed brick buildings of about the 1800 period, from which several streets radiated away from the southeast, south, and southwest. Lamps were depressingly few and small, all low-powered incandescents, and I was glad that my plans called for departure before dark, even though I knew the moon would be bright. The buildings were all in fair condition and included perhaps a dozen shops in current operation, of which one was a grocery store of the first national chain, others a dismal restaurant, a drug store, a wholesale fish dealer's office, and still another at the eastern extremity of the square near the river, an office of the town's only industry, the Marsh Refining Company. There were perhaps ten people visible, and four or five automobiles and motor trucks stood scattered about. I did not need to be told that this was the civic center of Innsmouth. Eastward, I could catch blue glimpses of the harbor against which rose the decaying remains of three once beautiful Georgian steeples. And towards the shore on the opposite bank of the river, I saw a white belfry surmounting what I took to be the marsh refinery. For some reason or another, I chose to make my first inquiries at the chain grocery, whose personnel was not likely to be native to Innsmouth. I found a solitary boy of about 17 in charge, and was pleased to note the brightness and affability which promised cheerful information. He seemed exceptionally eager to talk, and I soon gathered that he did not like the place, its fishy smell, or its furtive people. A word with any outsider was a relief to him. 
He hailed from Arkham, boarded with a family who came from Ipswich, and came back home whenever he got a moment off. His family did not like him to work in Innsmouth, but the chain had transferred him there and he did not wish to give up his job. There was, he said, no public library or chamber of commerce in Innsmouth, but I could probably find my way about. The street I had come down was Federal. West of that were the fine old resident streets, Broad, Washington, Lafayette, and Adams, and east of it were the shoreward slums. It was in these slums, along Main Street, that I would find the old Georgian churches, but they were long abandoned. It would be well not to make oneself too conspicuous in such neighborhoods, especially north of the river, since people were sullen and hostile. Some strangers even disappeared. Some spots were almost forbidden territory, as he had learned at considerable cost. One must not, for example, linger around the marsh refinery, or around any of the still-used churches, or around the pillared order of Dagon Hall at New Church Green. Those churches were very odd and violently disavowed by their respective denominations elsewhere, and apparently using the queerest kind of ceremonials and clerical vestments. Their creeds were heterodox and mysterious, involving hints of certain marvelous transformations leading to bodily immortality of a sort on this earth. The youth's own pastor, Dr. Wallace of Ashbury M.E. Church in Arkham, had gravely urged him not to join any church in Innsmouth. As for the Innsmouth people, the youth hardly knew what to make of them. They were as furtive and seldom seen as animals that live in burrows, and one could hardly imagine how they passed the time apart from their desultory fishing. Perhaps, judging from the quantities of bootleg liquor they consumed, they lay for most of the daylight hours in an alcoholic stupor. They seemed sullenly band together in some sort of fellowship and understanding, despising the world as if they had access to another and preferable spheres of entity. Their appearance, especially those staring, unwinking eyes one never saw shut, was certainly shocking enough, and their voices were disgusting. It was awful to hear them chanting in their churches at night, especially during their main festivals or revivals, which fell once a year on April 30th and October 31st. They were very fond of the water and swam a good deal in both river and harbor. Swimming races out to Devil Reef were very common, and everyone in sight seemed well able to share in this arduous sport. When one came to think of it, it was generally only rather young people who were seen about in public, and of these, the oldest were apt to be the most tainted looking. When exceptions did occur, they were most likely persons who had no trace of aberrancy, like the old clerk in the hotel. One wondered what became of the bulk of the older folk, and whether the insmouth look were not a strange and insidious disease phenomenon 
which increased its hold as the years advanced. Only a very rare affliction, of course, could bring such a vast and radical anatomical changes to a single individual after maturity. Changes involving osseous factors as basic as the shape of the skull. But then, even this aspect was no more baffling and unheard of than the visible features of the malady as a whole. It would be hard, the youth implied, to form any real conclusions regarding such a matter, since one never came to know the natives personally, no matter how long one might live in Innsmouth. The youth was certain that many specimens, even worse than the worst visible ones, were kept locked indoors in some places. People sometimes heard the queerest kind of sounds. The tottering waterfront hovels north of the river were reputedly connected by hidden tunnels, being thus a venerable warren of unseen abnormalities. What kind of foreign blood, if any, these beings had, it was impossible to tell. They sometimes kept certain especially repulsive characters out of sight when government agents and others from the outside world came to town. It would be no use, my informant said, to ask the natives anything about the place. The only one who would talk was a very aged but normal-looking woman who lived at the poorhouse on the north rim of the town and spent her time walking or lounging around the fire station. This hoary character, Zelda Allen, was 96 years old and somewhat touched in the head besides being the town drunkard. She was a strange, furtive character who constantly looked over her shoulder as if afraid of something, and when sober, could not be persuaded to talk at all with strangers. She was, however, unable to resist any offer of her favorite poison, and once drunk, would furnish the most astonishing fragments of whispered reminiscence. After all, though, Little useful data could be gained from her, since her stories were all insane, incomplete hints of impossible marvels and horrors which could have no source save her own disordered fancy. Nobody ever believed her, but the natives did not like her to drink and talk with strangers, and it was not always safe to be seen questioning her. It was probably from her that some of the wildest and popular whispers and delusions were derived. Several non-native residents had reported monstrous glimpses from time to time, but between old Zelda's tales and the malformed denizens, it was no wonder such illusions were current. None of the non-natives ever stayed out late at night, there being a widespread impression that it was not wise to do so. Besides, the streets were loathsomely dark. As for business, the abundance of fish was certainly almost uncanny, but the natives were taking less and less advantage of it. Moreover, prices were falling and competition was growing. Of course, the town's real business was the refinery, whose commercial office was on the square only a few doors east to where we stood. Old Man Marsh was never seen, 
but sometimes went to the works in a closed, curtained car. There were all sorts of rumors about how Marsh had come to look. He had once been a great dandy, and people said he still wore the frock-coated finery of the Edwardian age, curiously adapted to certain deformities. His sons had formally conducted the office in the square, but laterly they had begun keeping out of sight a good deal and leaving the brunt of the affairs to the younger generation. The sons and their sisters had come to look very queer, especially the elder ones, and it was said that their health was failing. One of the Marsh daughters was a repellent, reptilian-looking woman who wore an excess of weird jewelry, clearly from the same exotic tradition to which the strange tiara belonged. My informant had noticed it many times and had heard it spoken of as coming from a secret horde, either of pirates or of demons. The clergymen, or priests, or whatever they were called nowadays, also wore this kind of ornament as a headdress, but one seldom caught glimpses of them. Other specimens the youth had not seen, but there were many rumored to exist around Innsmouth. The Marshes, together with the other gently-bred families of the town, the Waits, the Gillams, and the Elliots, were all very retiring. They lived in immense houses along Washington Street, and several were reputed to harbor and conceal certain living kinfolk whose personal aspect forbade public view, and whose deaths had been reported and recorded. Warning me that many of the street signs were down, the youth drew for my benefit a rough but ample and painstaking sketch map of the town's salient features. After a moment's study, I felt sure it would be great help, and pocketed it with profuse thanks. Disliking the dinginess of the single restaurant I had seen, I bought a fair supply of cheese crackers and ginger wafers to serve me as lunch later on. My program, I decided, would be to thread through the principal streets, talk with any non-natives I might encounter, and catch the eight o'clock coach for Arkham. The town, I could see, formed a significant and exaggerated example of communal decay. But, being no sociologist, I would limit my serious observations to the field of architecture. Thus, I began my systematic, though half-bewildered, tour of Innsmouth's narrow, shadow-blighted ways. Crossing the bridge and turning towards the roar of the lower falls, I passed close to the marsh refinery which seemed oddly free of the noise of industry. This building stood on a steep river bluff near a bridge and an open confluence of streets, which I took to be the earliest civic center, displaced after the revolution by the present town square. Recrossing the gorge on the main street bridge, I struck a region of utter desertion which somehow made me shudder. Collapsing huddles of gambrel roofs formed a jagged and fantastic skyline above which rose a ghoulish, decapitated steeple of an ancient church. Some houses along Main Street were tenanted, but most were tightly boarded up. 
Down unpaved side streets, I saw the black, gaping windows of deserted hovels, many of which leaned at perilous and incredible angles through the sinking part of the foundations. Those windows stared so spectrally that it took courage to turn eastward towards the waterfront. Certainly, the terror of a deserted house swells in the geometrical rather than arithmetical progression as houses multiply to form a city of stark dissolution. The sight of such endless avenues, a fishy-eyed vacancy, and death, and the thought of such linked infinites, of black, brooding compartments, given over to cobwebs and memories and the conqueror room, start up a vestigial fear and aversions that not even the stoutest philosophy can disperse. Fish Street was as deserted as Maine, though different in having many brick and stone warehouses in excellent shape. Water Street was almost its duplicate, save that there were great seaward gaps where the wharves had been. Not a living thing did I see, except the scattered fishermen on the distant breakwater, and not a sound did I hear, save the lapping of the harbor tides and the roar of the falls in the Minoxet. The town was getting more and more on my nerves, and I looked behind me furtively as I picked my way back to the tottering Water Street Bridge. The Fish Street Bridge, according to the sketch, was in ruins. North of the river were traces of squalid life, active fish-packing houses in Water Street, smoking chimneys and patched roofs here and there, occasionally sounds from indeterminate sources, and infrequent shambling forms in dismal streets and unpaved lanes. But I seemed to find this even more oppressive than the southerly desertion. For one thing, the people were more hideous and abnormal than those near the center of town, so that I was sometimes evilly reminded of something utterly fantastic which I could not place. Undoubtedly, the alien strain in the Innsmouth folk was stronger here than farther inland, unless, indeed, the Innsmouth look were a disease rather than a blood strain, in which case this district might be held to harbor the more advanced cases. One detail that annoyed me was the distribution of the faint sounds I heard. They ought naturally to have come wholly from the visible inhabited houses, yet, in reality, were often strongest inside the most rigidly boarded up facades. There were creakings, scurryings, and hoarse doubtful noises, and I thought uncomfortably about the hidden tunnels suggested by the grocery boy. Suddenly I found myself wondering what the voices of those denizens would be like. I had heard no speech so far in this quarter, and I was unaccountably anxious not to do so. Pausing only long enough to look at the two fine but ruinous churches on Main and Church Streets, I hastened out of that vile waterfront slum. My next logical goal was the new church green, but somehow or another, I could not bear to repass the church in whose basement I had glimpsed the inexplicably frightening form of that strangely diademed priest or pastor. 
Besides, the grocery youth had told me that the churches, as well as the Order of Dagon Hall, were not advisable neighborhoods for strangers. Accordingly, I kept north of Maine to Martin, turning inland, crossing Federal Street safely north of Green, and entering the decayed patrician neighborhood of the Northern Broad, Washington, Lafayette, and Adams Streets. Though these stately old avenues were ill-surfaced and unkempt, their elm-shaded dignity had not entirely departed. Mansion after mansion claimed my gaze, most of them decrepit and boarded up amidst neglected grounds, but one or two in each street showed signs of occupancy. In Washington Street, there was a row of four or five in excellent repair and finely tended lawns and gardens. The most sumptuous of these, with wide terraced parterres, extending back the whole way to Lafayette Street, I took to be the home of Old Man Marsh, the afflicted refinery owner. In all these streets, no living thing was visible, and I wondered at the complete absence of cats and dogs in Inn's mouth. Another thing which puzzled and disturbed me, even in some of the best-preserved mansions, was the tightly shuttered condition of many of the third-story and attic windows. Furtiveness and secretiveness seemed universal in this hushed city of alienage and death, and I could not escape the sensation of being watched from ambush on every hand by sly, staring eyes that never shut. I shivered as the cracked stroke of three sounded from the belfry on my left, too well I did recall the squat church from which those notes came. Following Washington Street towards the river, I now faced a new zone of former industry and commerce, noting that the ruins of a factory ahead and seeing others with the traces of an old railway station and covered railway bridge beyond up the gorge on my right. The uncertain bridge now before me was posted up a warning sign, but I took the risk and crossed again to the south bank where traces of life reappeared. Furtive, shambling creatures stared cryptically in my direction, and more normal faces eyed me coldly and curiously. Inn's mouth was rapidly becoming intolerable, and I turned down Payne Street towards the square in the hope of getting some vehicle to take me to Arkham before the still distant starting time of that sinister bus. It was then I saw the tumble-down fire station on my left and noticed the red-faced, bushy-haired, watery-eyed old woman in nondescript rags who sat on a bench in front talking to a pair of unkempt but not abnormal-looking firemen. This, of course, must be Zelda Allen, the half-crazed, licorice, nonagenarian, whose tales of old Inn's mouth and its shadow were so hideous and incredible. 3. It must have been some imp of the perverse, or some sardonic pull from dark, hidden sources, which made me change my plans as I did. I had long before resolved to limit my observations to architecture alone, 
and as I was hurrying towards the square in an effort to get quick transportation out of this festering city of death and decay, but the sight of old Zelda Allen set up new currents in my mind and made me slacken my pace uncertainly. I had been assured that the old woman could do nothing but hint at wild, disjointed, incredible legends, and I had been warned that the natives made it unsafe to be seen talking to her. Yet the thought of this aged witness to the town's decay, with the memories going back to the early days of ships and factories, was a lure that no amount of reason could make me resist. After all, the strangest and maddest of myths are often merely symbols or allegories based on truth, and old Zelda must have seen everything which went on in Innsmouth for the last ninety years. Curiosity flared up beyond sense and caution, and in my youthful egotism I fancied I might be able to sift a nucleus of real history from the confused, extravagant outpouring that I would probably extract with the aid of raw whiskey. I knew I could not accost her then and there, for the firemen would surely notice and object. Instead, I reflected, I would prepare by getting bootleg liquor at a place where the grocery boy had told me it was plentiful. Then I would loaf near the fire station in apparent casualness and fall in with old Zelda after she started on one of her frequent rambles. The youth said that she was very restless, sitting around the station for no more than an hour or two at a time. A quart bottle of whiskey was easily, though not cheaply, obtained in the rear of a dingy variety store just off the square in Elliott Street. The dirty-looking fellow who waited on me had a touch of the staring in's-mouth look, but was quite civil in his way, being perhaps used to the custom of such convivial strangers, truckmen, gold buyers, and the like, as were occasionally in town. Re-entering the square, I saw that luck was with me, for shuffling out of Payne Street around the corner of the Gillum House, I glimpsed nothing less than the tall, lean, tattered form of old Zelda Allen herself. In accordance with my plan, I attracted her attention by brandishing my newly purchased bottle and soon realized she had begun to shuffle wistfully after me as I turned into Waite Street on my way to the most deserted region I could think of. I was steering my course by the map that the grocery boy had prepared and was aiming for a wholly abandoned stretch of southern waterfront which I had previously visited. The only people in sight there had been the fishermen on the distant breakwater, and by going a few squares south, I could get beyond the range of these, finding a pair of seats on some abandoned wharf, and being free to question old Zelda unobserved for an indefinite time. Before I reached Main Street, I could hear a faint and wheezy, Hey, lady, behind me, and I presently allowed the old woman to catch up and take copious pulls off the quart bottle. I began quitting out feelers as we walked along Water Street and turned southward amidst the omnipresent dissolution and crazily tilted ruins, but found the aged tongue did not loosen as quickly as I had expected. At length, I saw a grass-grown opening toward the sea between crumbling brick walls, 
was the weedy length of an earth and masonry wharf projecting beyond. Piles of moss-covered stones near the water promised tolerable seats, and the scene was sheltered from all possible view by a ruined warehouse on the north. Here, I thought, was the ideal place for a long secret colloquy, so I guided my companion down the lane and picked out spots to sit among the mossy stones. The air of death and desertion was ghoulish, and the smell of fish was almost insufferable, but I was resolved to let nothing deter me. About four hours remained for conversation if I were to catch the eight o'clock coach for Arkham, and I began to dole out more liquor to the ancient tippler, meanwhile eating my own frugal lunch. In my donations, I was careful not to overshoot the mark, for I did not wish Zelda's vinous garrulousness to pass into a stupor. After an hour, her furtive taciturnity showed signs of disappearing, but much to my disappointment, she still sidetracked questions about Innsmouth and its shadow-haunted past. She would babble of current topics, revealing a wide acquaintance with newspapers and a great tendency to philosophize in a contentious village fashion. Toward the end of the second hour, I feared my quart of whiskey would not be enough to produce results, and I was wondering whether I had better leave old Zelda and go back for more. Just then, however, chance made an opening which my questions had been unable to make, and the wheezing ancient's rambling took a turn that caused me to lean forward and listen alertly. My back was towards the fishy-smelling sea, but she was facing it, and something or another caused her wandering gaze to light on the low, distant line of Devil Reef, then showing plainly, almost fascinatingly, above the waves. The sight seemed to displease her, for she began a series of weak curses, which ended in a confidential whisper and a knowing leer. She bent toward me, took a hold of my coat lapel, and hissed out some hints that could not be mistaken. That's where it all begun. That cursed place of all wickedness there where the deep water starts. Get o' hell. She'll drop down to the bottom no sounding line can touch. Old Captain Obed done it. Him that found out more than was good for him in the South Sea Islands. Everybody was in a bad way them days. Trade falling off, mills losing business, even the new ones. And the best of our men folks killed privateering in the War of 1812, or lost with the Elysee Brig and the Rangers Snow, both of them Gilman Venters. Obed Marsh, he had three ships afloat Brigantine Columbia, Brig Hetty, and Bark Sumatra Queen. He was the only one that kept on with the East Indian Pacific trade, though Esdras Martin's Bakhtin Malay pride made a venture as late as 28. Nobody was ever like Captain Obed, old limb of Satan. <laughs> I can mind him telling about furrin' parts and calling all the folks stupid for going to the Christian meeting and bearing their burdens meek and lowly. 
Says they'd oughter get better gods like some of the folks in the Inges. Gods as would bring them good fishing in return for their sacrifices, and would answer folks' prayers. Matt Elliot, his first mate, talked a lot too, only it was again folks doing any heathen things. Told about an island east of Odehite, where there was a lot of stone ruins, older than anyone knew anything about. Kinda like them on Ponope in the Carolines, but with carvings of faces that looked like the big statues on Easter Island. There was a little volcanic island near there, too, where there was other rooms of different carvings. Rooms worn all the way like they'd been under the sea once, with pictures of awful monsters all over them. Wow, Matt. He says the natives all around there had all the fish they could catch and sported bracelets and armlets and head rigs made out of a queer kind of gold and covered with pictures of monsters just like the ones carved over the ruins on the little island. Sort of fish-like frogs or frog-like fishes that was drawn in all kinds of positions like they was human beings. Nobody could get out of them where they got that stuff. All the other natives wondered how they managed to find fish in plenty, even when the very next islands had lean pickings. Matt, he got to wondering that, too. And so did Captain Obed. Obed, he notices, besides, that lots of the handsome young folks would drop out of sight for good from year to year, and that there weren't many old folks around. Also, he thinks some of the folks looked darn queer even for Kanakis. It took Obed to get the truth out of them heathen. I don't know how he done it, but he begun trading for gold things like they wore. Asking them where they got them from and if they could get more, and finally wormed the story out of the old chief, Wallachia, they called him. Nobody but Obed ever believed the old yeller devil, but the captain could read folks like they was books. <laughs> Nobody ever believes me now when I tell him, and I don't suppose you will, young lady. Oh, come to look at ye. You have got them sharp-reading eyes like Obed had. The old woman's whisper grew fainter, and I found myself shuddering at the terrible, sincere portentousness of her intonation. Even though I knew, her tale could be nothing but drunken fantasy. Wow. Obed, he learnt there are things on this earth as most folks never heard about, and wouldn't believe if they did hear. It seems these Kanakis was sacrificing heaps of their young men and maidens to some kind of old god things that lived under the sea and getting all kinds of favor in return. They met the things on a little islet with queer runes, and it seems them awful pictures of the frogfish monsters was supposed to be pictures of these things. Maybe they was the kind of critters that got all the mermaid stories and such started. 
They had all kinds of queer cities on the sea bottom, and this island was heaved up from thar. Seems like there was some of the things alive in stone buildings when the island came up sudden to the surface. That's how the Kanakis got wind they was down thar. Made hand sign as soon as they got over being scarred and pieced up a bargain afore long. Them things liked human sacrifices. Had them ages afore, but lost track of the upper world after a time. What they done with the victims ain't for me to say, and I guess Obed he weren't none too sharp about asking. But it was all right with the heathens, because they had been having a hard time and was desperate about everything. They give a certain number of the young folks to the sea things twice every year, May Eve and Halloween, regular as could be. Also gave some of the old carved knickknacks they made. What the things agreed to give in return was plenty of fish. They drive them from all over the sea, and a few gold things now and then. Well, as I says, the natives met the things on a little volcanic islet, going there in canoes and sacrificing etc., and bringing back any of the gold-like jewels as was coming to them. At first, the things didn't never go on to the main island, but after a time, they come to want to. Seems they hankered after mixing with the folks and having joint ceremonies on big days, May Eve and Halloween. You see, they was able to live both in and out the water. What they call amphibians, I guess. The Kanakis told them as how folks from the other islands might want to wipe them out if they ever got wind of their being there. But they says they don't care much because they could wipe out the whole brood of humans if they was willing to bother. That is, as any didn't have certain signs, such as was used once by the lost old ones, whoever they was. But not wanting to bother, they'd lay low when anybody visited the island. When it came to mating with them toad-looking fishes, the Kanakis kind of balked. But finally they learned something as to put a new face on the matter. Seems that human folks has a kind of relation to such water beasts. And everything alive came out of the water once, and only needs a little change to go back in. Then things told the Kanakis that if they mixed bloods, there'd be children as looked human at first, but later turned more and more like the things, till finally... They take to the water and join the main lot of things down there. And this is the important part, young lady. Them as turned into fish things and went into the water wouldn't never die. Them things never died except was killed violent. Well, it seems by the time Obed knew the islanders, they was all full of fish blood from them deep water things. When they got old and began to show it, 
They was kept hid until they felt like taking to the water and quitting the place. Some of them was more touched than others, and some of them never did change quite enough to take to the water. But mostly, they turned out the way just them things said. Them that was born more like the things changed early, but them as was early human sometimes stayed on the island till they was past seventy, though they'd usually go down for trial trips afore that. Folks as had took to the water generally come back a good deal to visit, so the man could often be talking to his own five times great-grandfather, who left dry land a couple of hundred years or so afore. Everybody got out the idea of dying except the canoe wars with other islanders, or sacrifices to sea gods down below, or from a snake bite or a plague, or sharp galloping ailments or something before they could take to the water. But simply looked afford to a kind of change that wouldn't be a bit horrible after a while. They thought what they got was well worth what they had to give up. And I guess Obed kind of come to think the same himself when he chewed over old Wallachia's story a bit. Wallachia, though, was one of the few that hadn't got none of the fish blood, being of a royal line that intermarried with royal lines on other islands. Wallachia showed Obed all rites and incantations as to do with the sea things, and let him see some of the folks in the village as had changed a lot from human shape. Somehow or another, though, he would never let him see the regular things from right out of the water. In the end, he gave him a funny kind of thingamajig made out of lead or something that he said would bring the fish things from any place in the water where there might be a nest of them. The idea was to drop it down with the right kind of prayers and such. Wallachia allowed as things was scattered all over the world, so as anybody that looked could find a nest and bring him up if they was wanted. Man, he didn't like the business at all, and wanted Obed should keep away from the island. But the captain was sharp for gain, and found he could get them gold things so cheap, it'd pay him to make a specialty of them. Things went on that way for years, and Obed got enough of the gold-like stuff to make him start the refinery in Wade's old rundown filling mill. He didn't dare sell the pieces like they was, for folks would be all the time asking questions. All the same, his crews would get a piece and dispose of it now and then, even though they was swore to keep quiet. And he'd let his women folks wear some of the pieces as was more human-like than most. Well, come 38, when I was seven year old... Obed found the island people had been wiped out between voyages. Seems other islanders got wind of what was going on and took matters into their own hands. Suppose they must have had, after all, them magic signs as the sea things said was the only things they was afeard of. No telling what any of them canakies will chance to get a hold of when the sea bottom throws up some island 
with runes older than the deluge. Pious cusses these was. They didn't leave nothing standing on either island or the volcanic islet except the parts that the runes was too big to knock down. In some places there were stones strewn about, like charms, with something on them, what ye call a swastika nowadays. Probably them was the old one's signs. Folks all wiped out, no trace and no gold-like things, and none of the nearby canakees would breathe a word about the matter. Wouldn't even admit there'd ever been any people on that island. That hit Obed pretty hard, seeing as how his normal trade was doing very poor. It hit the whole of Inn's mouth, too, because in seafaring days, what profited the master of the ship generally profited the crew proportionate. Most of the folks around town took the hard times kind of sheep-like and resigned, but they was in bad shape because the fishing was petering out and the mills weren't doing none too well. Then's the time Obed began cursing at folks for being dull sheep and praying to a Christian heaven as didn't help them none. He told them he knowed of folks as prayed to God to give him something you really need and says if a good bunch of men stand by him he could maybe get a hold of certain powers as could bring plenty of fish and quite a bit of gold. Of course, them that served on the Sumatra Queen and seed the island knowed what he meant, and weren't none too anxious to get close to the sea things like they heard tell on, but them as didn't know what twas all about got kind of swayed by what Obed had to say and began to ask him what he could do to set him on the way to a faith as would bring them results. Here the old woman faltered, mumbled, and lapsed into a moody and apprehensive silence, glancing nervously over her shoulder, and then turning back to stare fascinatedly at the distant black reef. When I spoke to her, she did not answer, so I knew I would have to let her finish the bottle. The insane yarn I was hearing interested me profoundly, for I fancied there was contained within a sort of crude allegory based on the strangeness of Innsmouth and elaborated by imagination, at once creative and full of scraps of exotic legend. Not for a moment did I believe the tale had any really substantial foundation, but nonetheless the account held a hint of genuine terror if only because it brought in references to strange jewels clearly akin to the malign tiara I had seen in Newburyport. Perhaps the ornaments had, after all, come from some strange island, and possibly the wild stories were lies of the bygone Obed himself, rather than this antique toper. I handed Zelda the bottle, and she drained it to the last drop. It was curious how she could stand so much whiskey, for not even a trace of thickness had come into her high, wheezy voice. She licked the nose of the bottle, slipped it into her pocket, and began to nod and whisper softly to herself. I bent close to catch any articulate words she might utter, and thought I saw a sardonic smile behind the stained, bushy hair. Yes, she really was forming words, and I could grasp a fair portion of them. 
Poor Matt. Matt, he was always againted. Tried to line up folks on his side. Had long talks with preachers. Was no use. They ran the Congregational Parson out of town. And the Methodist feller. Never did see resolved Badcock, the Baptist Parson, again. Wrath of Jehovah. I was a mighty little critter, but I heard what I heard and I seen what I seen. Dagon and Ashtoreth. Belial and Beelzebub. Golden calf and idols of Canaan. And the Philistines and Babylonish abominations. Meany, meany to call a parson. She stopped again, and from the look in her watery blue eyes, I feared she was close to a stupor after all. But when I gently shook her shoulder, she turned on me with astonishing alertness and snapped out some more obscure phrases. Don't believe me, hey? <laughs> then just tell me, young lady, why'd Captain Obed and twenty other odd folks used to row out to Devil Reef in the dead of night and chant things so loud you could hear them all over town when the wind was right. Tell me that, eh? And tell me why Obed was always dropping heavy things into the deep water to other side of the reef where the bottom shoots down like a cliff, lower than it can sound. And tell me what he done with that funny-shaped lead thingamajig as Wallachia gave him. Hey, girl? And what did they howl on May Eve, and again next Halloween? And why'd the new church parsons, fellers as used to be sailors, wear them robes and cover themselves with them gold-like things Obed brung, eh? The watery blue eyes were almost savage or maniacal now, and the dirty white hair bristled electrically. Old Zelda probably saw me shrink back, for she began to cackle evilly. <laughs> beginning to see, eh? Maybe you'd like to have been me in them days, when I'd seed things at night out at sea from the cupulo top of my house. Oh, I can tell you little pitchers have big ears, and I wouldn't miss nothing that was gossiped about Captain Obed and the folks out at the reef. <laughs> How about the night I took my pa's ship glass up to the cupulo and see the reef bristling thick with shapes that dove off soon's the moons rise? Obed and the folks was in a dory, but them shapes dove off the far side into the deep water and never came up. How do you like to be a little shaver alone in a cupulo watching shapes as wasn't human shapes, eh? <laughs> The old woman was getting hysterical, and I began to shiver with a nameless alarm. She laid a gnarled claw on my shoulder, and it seemed to me that its shaking was not altogether that of mirth. Suppose one night you seed something heavy heaved off of Obed's dory beyond the reef, and learnt the next day a young feller was missing from home, Hey. Did anybody ever see hiding her hair of Hiram Gillum again? Did they? And Nick Pierce? And Llewellyn Waite? And Adon Iram Southwick? And Henry Garson? Hey? <laughs> Shapes talk in sign language with their hands, 
them as had real hands. Well, that was the time Obed began to get on his feet again. Folks seeing his three daughters are wearing gold things as nobody's seen before, and smoke starting to come out of the refinery chimney. Other folks were prospering too. Fish began to swim into the harbor fit to kill, and heaven knows what size cargoes we began to ship out to Newbury, Arkham, Boston. T'was then Obed got the old branch railroad put through. Some Kingsport fishermen heard about the catch and come up in sloops, but they was all lost. Nobody ever seen them again. And just then, our folks organized the esoteric order of Dagon and bought the Masonic Hall off in Calvary and Commandery for it. <laughs> Matt Elliott was a mason, and again the selling, but he dropped out of sight just then. Remember... I ain't saying Obed was set on having things just like they was on Kaneki Island. I don't think he aimed at first to do no mixing or raise young'uns to take to the water and turn into fishes with eternal life. He wanted them gold things and was willing to pay heavy, and I guess others were satisfied for a while. Come 46 and the town had done some looking and thinking for itself. Too many folks missing. Too much wild preaching a meeting of Sunday. Too much talk about that reef. And I guess I'd done a bit of telling to select man Maury what I saw from the cupolo. There was a party one night that followed Obed's crowd out to the reef, and I heard shots betwixt the dories. Next day, Obed and 32 others was in jail and everybody wondering just what was afoot and just what charging him could be got to hold. God, if anybody had looked ahead. A couple of weeks later, when nothing had been thrown into the sea for that long. Zelda was showing signs of fright and exhaustion, and I let her keep silence for a while, though glancing apprehensively at my watch. The tide had turned and was coming in now, and the sound of the waves seemed to rouse her. I was glad of that tide, for at high water the fishy smell might not be so bad. Again I strained to hear her whispers. That awful night. I seed them. I was up in the cupolo. Hordes of them, swarms of them. All over the reef swimming up the harbor to the Minuxet. God, what happened in the streets of Innsmouth that night. They rattled our door. Pa wouldn't open. He climbed out the kitchen window with his musket to find Selectman Mari and see what he could do. Mounds of dead and dying. Shots and screams. Shouting in the old square and in the town square and the new church green. Jail throwed open. Proclamation. Treason. Called it a plague when folks came and found half our people missing. Nobody left but them that would jine in with Obed and them things, or else keep quiet. Never heard of my pa no more. The old woman was panting and perspiring profusely. Her grip on my shoulder tightened. 
Everything cleared up in the morning, but there was traces. Obed kinder takes charge and says things gonna be changed. Others will worship with us at meeting time, and certain houses has to entertain guests. They wanted to mix like they had done with the Kanakis, and he, for one, didn't feel bound to stop him. Far gone was Obed. Just like a crazy man on the subject. He says they bring us fish and treasure, and they should have what they hankering after. Nothing was to be different on the outside. Only we was to keep shy of strangers if we'd knowed what was good for us. We all had to take the oath of Dagon, and later there was second and third oaths that some of us took. Them as would help special would get special rewards, golden cinch. No use balking, for there was millions of them down there. They'd rather not start rising up and wiping out humankind, but if they was gave away and forced to, they could do a lot towards just that. We didn't have old charms to cut them off like the folks in the South Sea did, and them Kanakis wouldn't never give up their secrets. Yield up enough sacrifices and savage knickknacks and harborage in the town when they wanted it, and they'd leave well enough alone. It wouldn't bother no strangers as bear a tails outside. That is, without they got prying. All in the band of the faithful. Order of Dagon. And the children should never die. But go back to Mother Hydra and Father Dagon... What we all came from once. Yeah, yeah, Cthulhu. Fthagan. Fengui. Gulranth. Cthulhu. Rular. Gachnegel. Fengui. Old Zelda was lapsing into stark raving, and I held my breath. Poor old soul. To what pitiful depths of hallucination had her liquor, plus her hatred of the decay, alienage and disease around her brought that fertile imaginative brain she began to moan now and the tears were coursing down her channeled cheeks into the depths of her neck god what i seen since i was 15 year old meany meany takala prison the folks was missing and them as killed themselves them as told things in arkhamarit switch such places was all called crazy. Like you're calling me right now. But God, what I've seen. They'd have killed me a long time ago for what I know. Only I took the first and second oaths of Dagon. Oft Obed. So was protected unless an a jury of them proved I told things knowing and deliberate. But I wouldn't take the third oath. I'd die rather than do that. It got worse around Civil War time when the children born in 46 begun to grow up. Some of them, that is. I was afeard. I never did no prying after that awful night. And never see one of them close to in all my life. That is, never no full-blooded one. I went to war. And if I had any guts or sense, I'd never come back. 
but settled away from here. But folks wrote me things ain't so bad. That, I suppose, was because government draftmen was in town after 63. After the war, it was just as bad again. People began falling off. Mills and shops shut down. Shipping stopped. Harbor choked up. Railroad gave up. But they... They never stopped swimming in and out of the river from that cursed reef of Satan. And more and more addict windows got boarded up and more and more noises were heard in houses it was supposed to have nobody in them. Folks outside have their stories about us. I suppose you've heard plenty of them seeing the questions he asked. Stories about things they've seen now and then and about what queer jewelry is still comes from somewheres and ain't quite melted up. But nothing never gets definite. Nobody believe nothing. They call the gold things pirate loot and allow the Innsmouth folks has fern blood or is distempered or something. Besides, them that lives here shoo off strangers as they kin and encourage the rest not to get very curious, especially around night time. Beasts balk at the critters, horses worse than mules, but then they got autos, so that was all right. In 46, Obed took a second wife that nobody in town never see. Some says he didn't want to, but was made to by them, as he'd called in. Had three children by her. Two disappeared young, but one gal looked like everybody else and was educated in Europe. Obed finally got her married off by a trick to an Arkham feller, as didn't suspect nothing. But nobody outside'll have nothing to do with Innsmouth folks now. Barnabas Marsh, that runs the refinery now, is Obed's grandson by his first wife, son of Onesiphorus, his eldest son. But his mother was another one of them that wouldn't never seed outdoors. Right now, Barnabas is about changed. Can't shut his eyes no more and is all out of shape. They say he still wears clothes, but he'll take to the water soon. Maybe he's tried it already. They do sometimes go down for little spells before they go for good. Ain't seed about in public for near high ten year. Don't know how his poor wife can feel. She come from Ipswich. And they nigh lynched Barnabas when he courted her fifty-odd year ago. Obed, he died in 78, and all the next generation is gone now. The first wife's children are dead. And the rest, God knows. The sound of the incoming tide was now very insistent. And little by little, it seemed to change the old woman's mood from maudlin tearfulness to watchful fear. She would pause now and then and renew her nervous glances over her shoulder out toward the reef. And despite the wild absurdity of her tale, I could not help beginning to share her vague apprehensiveness. Zelda now grew even shriller 
and seemed to be trying to whip up her courage with even louder speech. Hey, you. Why don't you say something? How'd you like living in a town like this where everything rotten and dying, all boarded up monsters crawling and bleating and barking and hopping around black cellars in attics every way you turn? Hey, how'd ye like to hear the howling night after night from the churches and New Order Dagon Hall and know what's doing part of the howling? How do you like to hear what comes from that awful reef every May Eve and Halloween Mass, eh? Think the old woman's crazy, eh? Well, let me tell you, that ain't the worst. Zelda was really screaming now, and the mad frenzy of her voice disturbed me more than I care to own. Curse ye! Don't sit there staring at me with them eyes. I tell Obed Marsh he's in hell. And he's got to stay there. Ha 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 ha! In hell, I says. Can't get me. I ain't done nothing nor told nobody nothing. Oh, you, young lady. Well, even if I hadn't told nobody nothing yet, I'm a going to now. You just sit still and listen to me, girl. This is what I ain't never told nobody. I says I do no prying after that night, but I found things out just the same. You want to know what a real horror is? Hey, well, it's this. It ain't what them fish devils has done, but what they're going to do. They're a-bringing things up out where they come from into town. Been doing it for years, and slacking up lately. Them houses north of the river betwixt water and main streets is full of them. Them devils and what they bring. And when they get ready, I say when they get ready, ever hear tell of a shoggoth? Hey, do you hear me? I tell you, I know what them things be. I seen him one night when... The hideous suddenness of the inhuman frightfulness of the old woman's shriek almost made me faint. Her eyes, looking past me towards the malodorous sea, were positively staring from her head, while her face was a mask of fear worthy of a Greek tragedy. Her bony claw dug monstrously into my shoulder, and she made no motion as I turned my head to look at whatever she had glimpsed. There was nothing that I could see, only the incoming tide, and perhaps one set of ripples more local than the long-flung line of breakers. But now Zelda was shaking me, and I turned back to watch the melting of that fear-frozen face into a chaos of twitching lids and mumbling gums, Presently her voice came back, albeit as a trembling whisper. Get out of here. Get out of here. They seen us. Get out for your life. Don't wait for nothing. They know now. Run for it. Quick. Out of this town. Another wave dashed against the loosening masonry. 
the bygone wharf and changed the mad ancient's whisper to another inhuman, blood-curdling scream. Before I could recover my scattered wits, she relaxed her clutch on my shoulder and dashed wildly inland toward the street, reeling northward around the ruined warehouse wall. I glanced back at the sea, but there was nothing there. And when I reached Water Street and looked along it toward the north, there was no remaining trace of Zelda Allen.